morning and welcome to Rising. We have a stupendous show for you this morning. So glad you are watching us. We really appreciate it. Hello, Brianna. Hello, happy Juneteenth. Yes, happy Juneteenth. <laughs> uh, how was your weekend? My weekend was good. You had I a little bit of travel? I did. I was in Philadelphia, which feels like a kind of a patriotic good thing to do this time of year, Juneteenth, the 4th of July coming up, etc. How about yourself? Didn't do much. Um, no surprise, a lot of Zelda. <laughs> and the wife's going out of town next weekend, so next weekend will be a Zelda-rama. Okay, let's get to the news. Um, got a great show today. As we said, Ken Klippenstein will join us from The Intercept to discuss the FBI's increase in investigations into abortion rights activism. Plus, you might have seen commentator Keith Olbermann calling for Brianna and I uh, to be fired by our, our bosses. He's hope trying to cancel us, He's Robbie. trying to cancel us. Um, I hope they missed that. I don't think we're in... Uh, uh, any jeopardy, but uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. And what are we talking about right now? Oh, well, first up, yesterday the Biden administration missed its deadline to declassify documents relating to the origins of COVID-19 as required by Congress. The spring 2023 COVID-19 Origins Act required the White House to release the documents within 90 days of its passing, which was June 18th. Now, back in March, President Biden agreed to, quote, declassify and share as much of that information as possible. However, he pledged to keep disclosures, quote, consistent with his constitutional authority to protect national security. Now, as of the taping of this segment Monday morning, the Biden administration seems to have ignored this deadline. This even after GOP senators Josh Hawley and Mike Braun sent a letter last week urging the president to abide by the law, writing, quote, the American people deserve to know how this pandemic began. And their democratically elected representatives have expressed their will unanimously. We urge you not to stand in their way. So this is not entirely surprising, but very disappointing. Mm. Uh, the administration has just blown past this deadline. I should say, as far as I can tell, it's not um, like I was looking for the information. It's not on. It's supposed to be on the uh, Department of National Intelligence website. It's not the Director of National Intelligence. It's not there. They haven't put out any press releases or anything in the last few days to suggest it came out. Um, so unless they buried it on some <laughs> corner of federalgovernment.com that I can't duck of, that I can't find, um, it's not out yet. I saw some people speculating that. I, I don't know, maybe it's counting business days and it's a holiday, it's a holiday. and maybe Tuesday. I was going to say, is it still I yesterday in Hawaii? No, like. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. But uh, also there's speculation that, so, so Blinken's in China right now, mm. that they wouldn't want to release it while he's in China because the, the this well, report like might offend the Chinese You can anticipate and predict. We knew that they had a 90-day timeline. Why would they plan it? If that was going to right. prevent them from doing the thing that they're obliged to do, why plan his trip for this date? Right, and, and what we're additionally concerned about is that, so there's very little enforcement mechanism in this law, which was passed you know, totally bipartisan. Everyone voted for it, Biden signed it. Does that mean it's toothless because there's no enforcement? And also there's like, there is a written in exception for, for the director of national intelligence to say, no, this is national security. Because this is supposed to be not, a, not another report summarizing the fact that various intelligence agencies have concluded X, Y, or Z. We want the actual intelligence. We want to know why they concluded X, Y, or Z. 
And, and what I'm getting at is what we want is really confirmation of what Taibbi, Schellenberger, and others reported that we talked about on the show recently, that the first three patients or the three earliest patients they can find are these scientists, Ben Hu, and others who worked at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, first people to come, become sick. If that is confirmed, and again, Schellenberger, Taibbi have reported it based on information they've gotten from government sources, if that's confirmed, I mean, that's pretty persuasive evidence right. that it did, in fact, come from the lab. Um, the Wall Street Journal did report this actually years ago, and there just wasn't a lot of follow-up. So my, my guess, it's just a guess, is that the government does have that information. Mm -hmm. It ha has knowledge that those three scientists were sick. So I want that, once that's declassified, then we can, I mean, everyone can make whatever conclusions they want, but the, the very strong conclusion of that will be that COVID came from a lab. Yeah, I mean, you had hypothesized a little bit that perhaps the um, you know intelligence sources that prompted Schellenberger et al. to write the story might the, the timing of that might have been related to the fact that the information was all about to come out right. anyway. So maybe there's a lower risk threshold to give them a little bit of a scoop when you know the information is going to come out or whatever right. it is. Um, but the fact of this information now being delayed at least in the short term, does that make you feel differently about that at all? I don't know. Uh, I mean, it could be also internally there's frustration mm. that it's not going to be um, that it's not going to be released publicly the way clearly is the will of the people and the, the people who voted for it want it to be. So maybe someone felt they should leak it mm. because it's not coming out. Mm -hmm. um, I really can't tell. But look, the bottom line is also at this time where we're really getting all worked up about classified documents, mm. this whole Trump prosecution is is hinges on Trump not doing exactly the right storage thing with classified documents. Um, this is like going in the opposite direction, but why doesn't Joe Biden abide by the will of the people, the vote to declassify these documents? Um, we deserve to know. We ought to know. Uh, and so many people yeah. have raised, uh, have, have raised, I think, very important pointed questions about how. Remember the speculation just even like six months ago from Atlantic and New York Times, you know, reading that study on genetic materials at the Wuhan wet market and saying, oh yeah, this really points to mm. what was it to the raccoon dog? Raccoon dog. Well, if, if the government has known for like a long time that those three scientists got sick and is just not giving that, no one would be speculating about raccoon dogs That's if they just like let people know that, that, hey, we know these three scientists got sick. And that's such an important point because some of the discourse around classification, and you've mentioned this point several times, I think, astutely, is that the classification system, more often than not, has been used to protect government leakers who give stories to mainstream news organizations, like perhaps a, a uh, raccoon dog story, at the same time that they use it to prosecute people who leak things that are in the public interest, like Julian Assange. And the fiction of there being an espionage act that is applied broadly, and that is actually well tailored to protecting the government interests, national security secrets, and the like, is really exploded when you look at the selective prosecution of people under that act. And I, I do think it's difficult to have this conversation now because it's undeniable that Donald Trump did violate the letter of the law, and also that he did more than what Pence and others have done insofar as when the National Records Archives politely asked for the documents back, he threw a fit and he did this shell game where he moved the boxes from bathroom to bathroom and all of this <laughs> absurd stuff that we now know from the indictment. But it's also true that people who did lesser things, I'm, I'm not, it's mm -hmm. not equivalent, but people who did lesser things, the likes of which Biden and 
Pence and Hillary Clinton have done have also been prosecuted and sent to jail, including Julian Assange, who did not steal the documents. He was a reporter that reported on the documents. So I think there is a broader conversation to have. I know it's difficult because there's this question of Trump and whether he should be accountable hanging in the balance. But there is a broader question, uh, conversation to be had about whether or not by buying into this idea of the, the national interest um, and the, the necessity of having certain documents classified, we are enabling a kind of... Um, a series of political pograms on people who very much do have what I would call the public interest uh, at heart by letting us know about illegal drone programs and, and the like. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got a clip of a Democratic congressman talking about the potential origin of COVID disclosures. Let's watch that. It's hard uh, to figure out exactly how a pandemic started, exactly where. This is true of Ebola, it's true of HIV. It's particularly hard when the people who are in charge of all of the science, all of the jurisdictions uh, are not being forthcoming. And of course, the Chinese have not been open and transparent about exactly what happened inside their country. Yeah, I mean, that's all true, but right now the U.S. government is not being open and transparent. <laughs> And uh, I remember all this speculation, well, we'll never know. You know, we'll never know what really happened. Maybe we'll never know, or maybe the U.S. government can do, can do some <laughs> pretty straightforward kind of intelligence gathering and find out that, oh, actually, there, it's pretty definitive that three people at this lab got sick with COVID, and that predates the, the uh, wet market uh, breakout anyway. And, and that's, that's pretty definitive proof. And they might have known that for months. So we're all saying, I guess we'll never know when the U.S. government actually, again, maybe, allegedly, does know. And I, I just, I don't understand the lack of curiosity that some people have about this. This is kind of a big, like, millions of people died because of this. Um, I, if, if it is the case that, that there was not proper oversight in the, the funding of this research, that we weren't making sure proper protective uh, uh, policies were being followed, um, Again, this is not, it is not all the idea that this was like a racist anti-Chinese conspiracy yeah. is so preposterous because the further we go down this line of inquiry, the more the U.S. government looks to be just as at fault. Yeah. And maybe that's the reason they're not interested in doing these disclosures, frankly. Yeah, I also do think it has something to do with the scale, the enormity of what happened and the lives lost and the financial costs. It makes it so that whoever's responsible is basically judgment-proof. Nobody is ever going to be able to pay for the external externalities that accrued as a consequence of either a zoonotic origin or sure. lab leak theory. And so I think to some people it's like, well, if we find out who's responsible, if there's something you can do, it makes them feel sort of impotent and like there's not any per, you know point of looking. But the people who benefit from the, that worldview mm -hmm. are those who should have to pay something um, and have some kind of, kind of accountability. Right. And I think it does the whole world a disservice not to have real curiosity, as you put it, into what these origins really are. Right. I mean, they. Yeah, I watched the Chernobyl miniseries. The Soviets uh, prosecuted the uh, the person overseeing the lab who mm. who uh, was was negligent. I mean, if somebody. If the nuclear sub guy, you know, accidentally presses it, well, this can't happen because, right, two people have to turn the key at once. But if they both accidentally turned the key at once and they nuked New Zealand and millions of people died, yeah. I would think, you know, we wouldn't say, oops, too bad. Yeah. We shouldn't. No yeah. one should be okay with that. Yeah. Anyway, we hope to uh, learn more, hear more, and actually have the intelligence declassified soon. More rising right after this.
Joe Rogan is being accused of promoting misinformation once again. This time, virologist Peter Hotez tore into Rogan on Twitter for hosting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on his podcast last week, where they talked about COVID, controversial treatments, and called the vaccine into question. Rogan responded in kind Saturday, challenging Hotez to debate RFK Jr., tweeting, quote, Peter, if you claim what RFK Jr. is saying is misinformation, I am offering you $100,000 to the charity of your choice if you're willing to debate him on my show with no time limit. On Sunday night, Hotez appeared to be open to returning to Rogan's show. Here he is on MSNBC's Mehdi Hassan show Sunday night. Let's watch. Is anti-vaccine disinformation, it's always done a lot of damage and harm, but now it's a yeah. lethal force in the United States. And that's why we that's why we have to have that discussion. And I offered to come and talk to go on Joe Rogan again. I've been on a couple of times yeah. and have that discussion with him, but not to turn it into the Jerry Springer show with having RFK Jr. <laughs> on. Right. So he said he would come on again, but not debate RFK Jr., someone of his ilk. Independent journalist Alex Rosen questioned Hotez over the weekend, confronting him about a potential matchup with the 2024 presidential candidate. Here's a little bit of that. So why are you not like going to debate uh, RFK on Joe Rogan's podcast? Oh, come on. That's harassing. I'm just I'm just curious. What? I no, nothing I, hostile. Just curious. I haven't said anything one way or the other. I mean, are you planning on doing it? Uh, you know, I just he just invited me, so we'll see. And I think you should, though. Uh, well, we'll give it some. We'll give it some. Time. Okay. Okay. And what do you have to say to people who think they were vaccine injured? Uh, come on. Anything for them? I don't come to my house. I mean, do you have anything to say to people that think? Do you have anything to say to people? Yeah. I mean, do you think vaccine injuries are real, Peter? Peter, it's just a question. So that last clip is being characterized along with some of the Twitter pylon that's happened now that Elon Musk and some of these big ticket figures have gotten into the mix as harassment. It's seen as undue focus on this scientist um, that is coercive and perhaps even dangerous. Now, here's the thing. Everybody's weighing into this question of whether or not people could debate. And in the, in the course of it, people are saying some kind of wild stuff from my perspective. Like, science isn't about debate. And you can hear uh, Dr. Hotez saying this on Mehdi Hassan's show last night. Well, I think science, the debate in science is framed in the context of peer-reviewed journals. That's fair enough. And, and Hotez kind of acknowledges that on Mehdi Hassan's show and elsewhere. But it does seem odd at a certain point for there to be all of these claims about how easily debunked certain kinds of information are where no one who has decades of expertise in doing so is willing to step up to the plate and simply do it. And what that does, I, I appreciate the, the counter argument that people are putting out there is, well, someone like Joe Rogan or RFK Jr., they have a different kind of skill other than scientific expertise. They are debaters. They are politicians. They are wordsmiths. And it's not fair to ask a scientist to be good, not at science, but at this other skill where if you fail, you could look like you're losing, even if substantively on the merits, you're right. And so I, I take that. I, I take that criticism. I take that argument. But are you saying that there's not a scientist in America, there's not a virologist in America who is equipped also rhetorically, linguistically to make their case? And are we also saying that 
there, it isn't so clear that what Rogan is saying is scientifically and what RFK Jr. is saying is so scientifically baseless that it's impossible just to say, okay, what studies are you looking at? Here's why you're misinterpreting them, or here's why they represent a very small minority of studies that exist in the world, and get some clarification. Because at this point, I think that there's a lot of onus on journalists to now become scientists and debaters in order to get into the fray that has been abandoned by so many scientists with expertise that I'm interested to hear about. Sure, uh, absolutely. So to the last clip, um, is it harassing? Not, it looked like he was confronting him in a, a, a public area before he goes into his property. So no, but you know, I don't really love the tactic of chasing down people to their homes and confronting them this way. Obviously, sometimes that's something you have to do, but it didn't seem called for here. If that was all we were talking about, I'd say, yeah, that's not a friendly, neighborly tactic. Um, but uh, to your broader question, you're absolutely right. And if he's not the guy to do the debate, then maybe he can recommend someone sure. who is, because it's clearly an important debate to have. He has time to go on, and, and like he has time to go on friendly Mehdi Hassan show and complain about how how this is the whole. This is not science. Like science is sac sacrosanct. The way they're talking about it, it sounds like religion rather than science. No, it's it's not the the priesthood, the higher. People they decide on truth, and then it's not your right to question or scrutinize that. Um, even if, and e so I don't accept that framing. And then even if science, even if that framing was correct for science, then the policy implications yes. are totally different. It could yes. be well, we're all decided on what the science says, but then where the, it should be required and what the trade-offs should be, and then and 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 then the, the science of public opinion and how you influence people to make the good decision in keeping with science is totally something different that they have no expertise in. But I don't actually even feel that way about underlying science. It should be open for debate. There's, when you look at these things closely, you find out that there's a whole lot of studies that often reach different conclusions. And then when you look at them really closely, which you're right, takes a different set of skills sometimes than raw, you know, crossfire style, you know, in the arena for debating. Sure. Yeah. Um, there, there's a there's a lot of noise and a lot of confusion. A lot of well, this doesn't quite measure that because here's what they did. A lot in the in the in the social studies and like social psychology studies are retracted constantly because when they duplicate the results, they can't right. get them right. because there's a lot of creative, you know, j jumping around. Um, and, and then further, I would say maybe maybe he doesn't like Rogan or doesn't trust Rogan because Rogan is is clearly very sympathetic and much more sympathetic to RFK Jr.'s views. But a three-hour podcast is a better venue, frankly, yeah. for hammering out um, these kinds of, of differences than really almost any other venue because there's not enough time. Like yeah. we could host a debate on our show, but even if you know we stretch it, let it go for 20 minutes, well, it's still 20 <laughs> minutes yeah. and we're interjecting. And it's like, I, it, it can't be, especially for very complicated questions, I don't think it's a good format. And, and we still do better than almost anywhere else in cable news where it's like, three minutes for a segment. And to be fair to Dr. Hotez, he says he will, he has been on Rogan, I believe, twice before, and he says he's willing to go mm -hmm. back. And there is an argument that Joe Rogan definitely could queue up Rogan, uh, sorry, uh, RFK Jr.'s statements and have him respond piece by piece to what he has already said sure. on the show and basically get to the same result without RFK Jr. being in the room. I'm not like so committed to the necessity of RFK Jr. being mm. in the room, although I do think it could be instructive and helpful. RFK Jr. is not someone who is overly aggressive in debates or who wouldn't, I think, allow Dr. Hotez to talk. I don't think he has concern about getting talked over or anything like that. But part of my frustration as a layperson observing this is so much of this discourse is now taken up by, is it right to believe this? Is it right to say this? Is it right to debate this? 
where we could just be spending time talking about the substance of what people are saying. Something that I am now having to do in a way that's very frustrating. And to your point earlier, I, there have, for, there's been a, for a very long time, I, when I was a history of science major, I thought I was going to be a science journalist. I interned at Science Magazine one summer in college. Like, I, there, there are significant problems with scientists who write papers that have a whole variety of results and conclusions that the media, the AP, will print up. Uh, new research shows cholesterol is deadly. Don't eat eggs. And then we, three years later, oh, actually, they were measuring the wrong kind of cholesterol, and it turns out that eggs are really good for you, and people who eat you know, two eggs a day outlive everybody else. How many times have we seen the back and forth with eggs and coffee and glasses of wine and bars of you know, uh, non-milk chocolate? Mm -hmm. And it's not that the science necessarily was always wrong. Sometimes the science was wrong. Sometimes the conclusions of the study were interpreted overly broadly. But sometimes it'll be the same study that's interpreted in different ways. So one of the things that's in contention right now with RFK Jr. is that there is a study about, there's, a, there's an argument about two kinds of mercury, the kind of environmental mercury and the kind of mercury that is now taken out of most, I think all childhood vaccines, but is still in a flu vaccine that is sometimes administered to pregnant women. Now, there's a study that that vaccine only when administered during the first semester during pregnant women hasn't had some, some correlation to uh, bad health outcomes, principally uh, higher rates of autism. Now, that's a very limited finding. So you could look at that study and say it shows that from the risk for pregnant women of taking a flu vaccine is nil. Or you could look at that study and say there needs to be more research about what happens mm -hmm. when you administer it in the first semester, tri trimester. I think it would be wrong to say um, pregnant women shouldn't take vaccines because there's also a lot of risk associated with getting flu as a pregnant woman, right? You've got to take that into account. You've got to weigh the, weigh the risk rewards. But it might be reasonable to say pregnant women, just wait to the second trimester before you get your flu, flu vaccine. There's another study about um, whether the, the mercury, the good mercury versus the bad mercury is processed by the body differently. And there's a study that says, oh, no, it's actually the case that the kind of mercury in vaccines gets eliminated, cleared from the body more quickly than the mercury you have in fish. So you shouldn't be as concerned as you are about the mercury that you get from fish. However, there is a study that not just measures how much mercury is in your blood, but because they did it on monkeys and not humans, could kill the monkeys and actually measure how much mercury had collected in the brain. And in that case, that gives you a very different right. picture of results. So I need scientists grappling with this stuff so old little me doesn't have to be saying, well, one group of people is saying the study claims one thing. One group of people is saying the study is claiming another thing. I think on some big, broad issues like there has been no causal relationship established between vaccines and autism. Yes, that is absolutely true. And I think people are right to criticize RFK Jr. for sometimes suggesting otherwise. But having pat conclusive statements like you just have to trust the science, especially after there's been so much back and forth around COVID vaccines and what they can and cannot do, it's just going to strike people like you're trying to hide and cover up the truth. And I think it's going to grow people's skepticism in a way that could lead to bad outcomes like low vaccine, um, uh, fear and fear people right. taking vaccines who uh, are children and you get measles outbreaks and things like that. That can kill a lot of people. They're at the level of this question has been decided for you, yeah. so it's not open for debate. We have th This is not something you can have a different opinion on. We've settled it. Don't ask any questions, which is a very um, outdated, I think, way of seeing. You know, it used to be media, government in less polarized time, in times where there were honestly fewer alternative media 
out platforms to compete for people to just spout off and say what they think, maybe you could manufacture this idea that this is a settled question. That's just that's not something you can do anymore. Yeah. I think it's it can be beneficial. It can be harmful, but it can also be beneficial for society that that's not something you can do anymore. They're operating in this, uh, and by they I mean Dr. Hotez, Mehdi Hassan type people operating in this world where they can just say, nope, the we're not debating yeah. it because there's no debate. Joe Rogan is the most popular media platform in America. Sure. If you choose not to engage with what he's saying, there's no platform or deplatforming. There's no, well, the conversation will go away. People are saying things like, well, I wouldn't debate a flat earther. It's like, well, sure. But if the flat earth movement got to a point where 11 million people or whatever it is that mm -hmm. tune into Joe Rogan every week are being convinced by a so-called expert that flat eartherism is true, it might be worthwhile if you are an astronaut that's been to space and looked out at the big ball <laughs> just to show up and say, hey, guys, remember gravity? Remember how the horizon line curves? Remember how I was in space? What, right. What's the harm of I, I don't know. I'm really struggling with the idea that allowing some of the toxic stuff to fester unchecked is really going to have the effect of dampening it in any way. Right. You, you, and it used to be a little bit easier to, well, if we don't talk about it, it's not being talked about because yeah. there wasn't a platform to talk Absolutely. about it. They can't do that anymore. Yeah. More rising right after this. We had 2024 Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on Rising this past week, and he talked about all things COVID, transgender athletes, and of course, aliens. But now it seems like there's been a call to cancel us. <laughs> Former <laughs> CNN sports commentator Keith Olbermann tweeted on Friday in response to our interview and RFK Jr.'s comments on the lab leak theory of COVID-19. Dear The Hill, you forfeited your right to keep doing this. Fire these conspiracy nuts, Robbie Suave and Bree uh, Bree Joy. <laughs> I guess that's you, Bree Bree Joy. Twitter handle. <laughs> uh oh, I got it. Okay, <laughs> shutter the operation, close down the cameras. Hope you can regain your credibility as a sorta news organization. Yeah, and an important part of this story is that, unsurprisingly, he received quite the ratio. Uh, for those who don't live on the internet, that means you have a bad ratio of comments to likes, a lot more people commenting basically to tell you that you're wrong, compared with the number of people who liked the tweet to tell you that you were right. I wish he had done this in video format, because <laughs> I miss his, his just thunderous, um, breathless commentary. The worst people in the world, Brianna Joy Gray and Robbie I mean, this, this is what's so frustrating. I mean, not too long ago, I, like many people, enjoyed his, you know, Bush two era commentary. It seemed like we were all on the same side back in the day and his somewhat bombastic approach seemed to really channel genuine frustrations of the American people. And then some, at some point, I don't know if it's Trump derangement or Russiagate or what have you, he seemed to just you know, go off on a lamb. And it's, it's frustrating because there was a lot about him that I once really liked and enjoyed. His turn as the whale version of himself on BoJack Horseman is one of my favorite cameos. I, don't, I haven't seen that show. I don't know what that. And he seems kind of self-aware. Yeah, he plays. There's you know in BoJack, all the characters are animals, and so he plays like a blue whale news reporter who's got a big head and is really bombastic. And it seems self-aware, like like he's in on the joke, and it makes you like him. It's endearing, but at this point, look, it's. Fine well, for people to criticize us, but what is the substantive criticism here? Couldn't he just say something on the interview that he disagreed with? Maybe we also disagreed with it. We pushed back 
um, on many right. things that RFK Jr. said in that interview. But is the fact of interviewing people now a crime in and of itself? Uh, right. And, and the part that he was so he was reacting to and we had you know, we tweeted a clip of the interview. And so he was quote tweeting that. And that's the part where I say if the COVID, if the origins of COVID are lab leak funded by U.S., then is there a case for actually pursuing criminal charges against Fauci-type people? Let's actually play it. Friends of our show, Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi, reported the other day that the earliest COVID patients actually did come from the Wuhan lab. They were scientists there. If this is confirmed, it would all but guarantee the lab leak theory, which I believe you've said in the past you also think uh, COVID originated from a Chinese lab. If that is the case, I want to know, will you prosecute Fauci and hold others criminally responsible in the U.S. health apparatus who advocated and funded gain-of-function research? Uh, I think I'm going to have to look at that, but I think they should be prosecuted. I think um, it was you know, reckless endangerment. Uh, they knew, you know, these all of these labs, including the Wuhan lab, had a history of leaks. Uh, there were numerous memos from the State Department and others saying that the lab was dangerous. It wasn't even a BSL-4 lab that they were doing these this research in. It was a BSL-2, BSL-3 labs that have, uh, you know, have very, very low thresholds and have, have uh, and this kind of research is malpractice to do it in the labs that the, the actual scientists who got ill, who they're now saying is patient one, is Ben Hu, who was the underling for the bat lady for Xi Zheng Li, and his funding and her funding came directly from NIH, and NIH taught them the technology for developing, not only for, uh, for making the technology that was used to make these viruses more infectious, uh, more virulent, more deadly, but also the, this technology called the seamless ligation technique, which is just a bioweapons technique for concealing human tampering on engineered viruses. And uh, it was utterly irresponsible to be teaching anybody that. They should not have developed that technique in the first place. It's the inverse of everything that mm. you would do if you actually were interested in public health. Mm. It's just, um, it's bioweapons technology. Right, so there you have it. I, I think it would be reasonable to hold, if it is the case, that our public health officials uh, and their advocacy of this research and uh, yeah. Fauci himself signed off on is what caused a pandemic that killed millions and millions and millions of people. Yeah. There would be there would be repercussions. And he and again he was agreeing that we're not we're not jailing Fauci for, you know, having mask mandates or something. We are saying there should be consequences if it is the case and if it is borne out that incautious funding, researching, safety protocols were not followed, and it resulted in, an, in a pandemic that killed millions of people. That is not at all a crazy thing to think. He was reacting to that. And then there was a little debate I, I was seeing in, in the response. Mm -hmm. uh, Mehdi Hassan, again, we've mm -hmm. been talking about a lot lately, said, pretty sure the criminality is from those who wrecked the response, denied care, hoarded ventilators, et cetera. And Ryan Grimm responds, like, okay, let's, we can have that conversation, it but both. you're saying there's no, <laughs> there's, there should be no liability and, for- And Mehdi responds, that's a lot of ifs, Ryan, right? Yeah. Like, it's a lot of, well, yes, if right. those things, but, it, 
That's the point that people are trying to investigate. Some people are trying to investigate to find out if those things are true. Mm -hmm. And other people are so concerned about how those truths, if they bear out, are going to be politically weaponized that they don't even want to know what happened. This is this is kind of at the core of why there was so much resistance to lab leak theory. It wasn't about the obvious possibility that that could be the origin of COVID. It was about who it was in the political context who was advocating or seemed to be most open to lab leak theory from the very beginning. And because it became partisan and politicized, a lot of liberals who kind of shouldn't have had any skin in the game, they're not Fauci, they're not working in the lab, they're not working for the CDC, they're not liable. They're the ones that are hurt by it. They're the ones that are staying inside. They're the ones that whose family members are dying because of COVID. But they became invested in mm -hmm. squashing that narrative simply because, I don't know, Donald Trump said it could be true. Right. And, did Joe, and Joe Biden said it could be true, right, too. Right. Like, well, now. A lot of sober, um, and actually, initially, Joe Biden expressed more concern over it when Trump was president. Mm. He was all eager to oh, right. get along with, uh, with the, the Chinese leadership. Yeah. Um, and then he, you know, then he pivoted to calling it right. Wuhan flu or whatever. Right. And so people couldn't deal with that. I also think this is a great um, representation of the evolution of Keith Olbermann and Keith Olbermann type people from, you brought up his, his Bush era commentary, mm -hmm. which you liked, mm -hmm. which was really all about the threat to civil liberties mm -hmm. that, uh, that the Bush administration represented in its, you know, pushing us to, to, into war based on false premises, um, the kind of, you know, Patriot Act era surveillance and all of that being bad, just so obviously offensive from a liberal perspective. Now, you know, he's someone who, you know, I'm paraphrasing it. I don't know if he's ever had a tweet that exactly says this, but it's, it's very like, you know, jail Trump for treason kind, right. of, kind of rhetoric. It's very, um, it's very, help me law enforcement, you're my only hope. Yeah. You have to come in and rescue this country from the political choices of the people. That is so anathema to what, to what him and people like him were doing in the aughts. Yeah. That's become so... Uh, I need help from the powers that be to stop this person I really don't like. And, and an implication that quasi-legal means would be perfectly acceptable. Yeah, and the, the asymmetry with feeling that way with respect to Fauci, the, the asymmetry of saying, if you were to want to prosecute Fauci, I mean, the implication here is it is purely political and something out of a banana republic to want to round up people that you simply disagree with. There's some parallels between that and the argument that Trump defenders are making, saying that you're weaponizing the Espionage Act that has historically been used to go after whistleblowers, and this is a, 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 a political prosecution. We live in a world now where everyone feels as though prosecutions, a desire to have any kind of accountability, is targeted and political. And frankly, it feels like that is a true statement. Now, a, a prosecution being political doesn't mean that someone didn't actually do something wrong and deserve to have accountability. But my my bigger, my growing concern is that in the interest of seeming fair, in the interest of protecting your guy, there's going to be a sort of detente where everyone agrees that nobody can ever be held accountable. And when I say nobody, I mean people who are rich and powerful. And that is the deal that has been struck in D.C., you know, in government for a very long time. Nixon doesn't go to jail. 
Bankers aren't prosecuted after the financial collapse. Hillary isn't prosecuted. Pence isn't prosecuted. Biden is unlikely to be prosecuted for this document case. Mm -hmm. And the Donald Trump being prosecuted of it all does stand to perhaps open a Pandora's box of sorts. And it's not entirely clear to me that everybody has really played out how far, far this is going to go. There's two ways to have consistency. To also prosecute Donald Trump for his lesser crimes of un un unlawfully retaining documents, mm -hmm. but which are, in fact, crimes that have been prosecuted for normal people, or to let Donald Trump off the hook. And you could argue that if you really do care about accountability, the move is to apply the rules consistently against the more powerful people. That also includes someone like Anthony Fauci, if it is actually demonstrated yeah. that he knew about Absolutely. the inadequacies well, of Well, look, I, I can also see an argument that—and I'm not saying I co-sign this, but an argument that the president or the political figure, the accountability should is actually the democratic process. Mm -hmm. That could be true for Trump, Biden, Bush, Bill Clinton, all of those people. Again, I'm not saying I agree with this, but sure. that ultimately we— there's going to be more leeway. There should be more leeway because the from the legal standpoint, because the ultimate check is the people. The people get to decide if they want this guy. But that doesn't apply to Fauci and like just government employees, just people who were like he's not subject to Democrat or he's much further removed from Democratic accountability than the president or a senator or someone like that. There's no way to get at him because he's appointed by someone else and 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 so on. Um, you, ha you, you have to have some kind of legal mechanism mm -hmm. for digging at those people, or else they're just totally unaccountable. And, and I do think that part of why RFK Jr. seems credible to folks is he does talk about some undeniable um, perverse incentive structures, like limited liability, like the mm -hmm. ability to profit uh, from NIH um, doctors from vaccine sales. Say what you want about their hearts and souls and their good intentions, but you can't deny how some of these incentive structures are going to have perverse outcomes, no matter how well-meaning a person is. And when you see the world is rigged, when you see these incentive structures rigging outcomes or predicting outcomes the way that they do, it does lead you to the conclusion. It, it, is, it is easier to jump to certain other kind of conclusions that may or may not be borne out about the underlying science or whether or not the government or whomever is purposefully out to get to you. So, yeah, if, if it is the case that we're saying, well, he has a liability shield or we're going we're gonna to selectively not prosecute him because, you know, he was working in the interest of the government or, you know, the, the administration at the time, that is going to have an effect on public trust. And you cannot have it both ways. If you want there to be more unanimity of opinion about things like vaccines and science and the CDC and administrative funding, you have to have some sense of accountability. And that means both being open to the idea of prosecuting people who are proven, proven to have done harm, not just randomly, but actually proven in a court of law, and also addressing some of these fundamental structural incentives. Absolutely. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Following the overturn of Roe v. Wade nearly a year ago, the FBI reportedly opened nearly 10 times as many investigations into cases of, quote, abortion-related domestic terrorism as it had in 2021, according to new reporting from The Intercept's Ken Klippenstein. 
The uptick allegedly follows pressure from major Republican lawmakers for the Bureau to pursue pro-abortion terrorism. Florida Senator Marco Rubio said last year pro-abortion terrorism sweeping the nation. Joining us now to discuss is investigative reporter at The Intercept, Ken Klippenstein. Ken, thank you for joining us. Hey, great to be with you guys. Yeah, so uh, wonderful to talk to you. Tell us more about your reporting here, you know, showing uh, what um, law enforcement is trying to do with respect to the abortion protests. Yeah, so the Justice Department's watchdog, the Inspector General, a couple weeks ago put out a report um, that it appears nobody read, and I'm very grateful for because this gave me a nice story to, <laughs> to run with. What this report found was that there was a um, huge increase in domestic terrorism cases against what's called abortion-related uh, incidents. And so uh, when you look at that number, it's almost a 10, time, 10 times increase um, over the previous fiscal year, the biggest increase we've seen um, for the data that was present in the Inspector General report. And I think a reflection of the increasing focus on um, domestic terrorism as the war on terror draws down and the intelligence community um, has to find um, a new sort of mission focus. So what do you say to folks who might be thinking, well, after the uh, after Dobbs, obviously there were a lot of people who were very frustrated about the right to choose uh, being stripped away, at least the federal protection of it. And therefore, there are more violent incidents, uh, attacks against uh, anti-abortion advocates, and the FBI, of course, has to investigate those. I would say they're right that there has been an uptick in uh, violent incidents, but when you uh, break down what those incidents are, many of them are ones that could be handled by uh, state and local law enforcement. Uh, there are plenty of laws on the books um, at the state and not federal level to, to prosecute them with. And when you look at a lot of the cases cited, which again, they're right, there, you know, there is cases of vandalism and in one case, a, a pro-life uh, clinic was firebombed. Um, what you find is that a lot of those cases could be handled by uh, state and local statutes. The question, I think, is do they have to be elevated to domestic terrorism? You know, I really see this as a sort of mirror image case of what had been happening uh, with the right. I mean, you see a lot of cases that the FBI is prosecuting as um, insurrection uh, that probably could be uh, prosecuted as vandalism or, you know, other other forms of laws that are already on the books. And so uh, what I had hoped in doing this story was to, you know, show people that when the FBI uh, pursues this new mandate of uh, domestic violent extremism, as they've uh, both made very clear in uh, public statements um, and also in the data about wh uh, what it is that they're uh, pursuing, there's been a huge increase over the last uh, several years. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, the, the mandate to um, you know look more closely at domestic um, extremism, domestic terrorism. I think there's a lot of buy-in to the idea, or broadly it's in the public, or it's among activist group, that there's a lot more um, extremist activity, especially on the right, that it motivates a whole lot of violence. Although when I look at the statistics, it then looks to me like it's a very, it's actually not a pretty fairly significant category of violence or crime in general is um, is ideological motivation. Um, I think we tend to over-focus on that. Um, is that kind of what's going on here? I think there's a lot of truth to that, yeah. What's interesting is if you look at the FBI's um, internal uh, policies, the way they define terrorism is different than the Department of Homeland Security, and indeed uh, other national security agencies define it. So in the case of Department of Homeland Security, they define it as being um, mass casualty event or the intention to um, produce one. Um, and in the case of the FBI, they don't actually need that. It can be damage to property. It doesn't include um, that that uh, 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 that criteria. 
And so that leads to a lot of these cases being prosecuted. And what, to me, again, I'm not condoning violence, uh, even against uh, property, um, but that's a very different sort of crime than the kind that actually um, results in uh, bodily harm, which Senator Rubio himself has conceded in the past. He says, no one's been hurt yet. We need to get ahead of this threat um, before it happens. And so I, I, you know, I really would like to see there be a debate that's bipartisan in nature, because when these agencies pursue domestic terrorism cases, the reality, if you talk to them, um, you know, uh, away from the cameras, is they'll say, yeah, if we've got 10 cases on one thing, we're under political pressure to produce at least a couple on the other side of the ledger to make it look like everything's fair. And um, I think the data shows pretty clearly that in cases of bodily harm, that greatly favors the the pro-life, uh, you know, extremists, if you want to call it that. But on different issues, it varies. And so I, I you know, I, I think there needs to be um, an, an accounting of that um, reality that doesn't like to be discussed, which is that the FBI is under political pressure, just like any other agency. Mm. Yeah, the, the numbers that you include in your piece are, are really sh striking. You write that from 1993 to 2016, there have been 11 murders and 26 attempted murders carried out by anti-abortion advocates um, against pro-abortion advocates. In contrast, um, Michael Gurman, a former FBI agent and fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program, says he was not aware of a single case of serious bodily injury by abortion rights advocates. And yet we're now seeing this tenfold increase in investigation into exactly those kind of issues. I mean, do you see this as kind of a wake-up call for some liberals who have been framing the um, movement to defund the FBI or to rein in the FBI, however you want to frame it, as a kind of right-wing effort to duck accountability, perhaps short-sightedly not acknowledging the extent to which that particular agency has historically disproportionately targeted the left. Yeah, I think it should be. And unfortunately, you know, we have two pieces of legislation before the House in the Senate um, to uh, enshrine in the federal definition of um, domestic terrorism uh, much broader criteria. And this has overwhelming support from the Democrats. The reason it hasn't passed yet is because there are some holdout Republicans. But, you know, I, I don't think that um, it's um, something you can necessarily count on that the Republicans aren't going to come around and support this because, again, that grants um, authorities to these types of agencies that there seems to be broad bipartisan consensus in, in many respects um, to do so. And I wish there would just be some foresight about, I mean, if you want to look at how um, this 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 approach to the threat was unrolled. I mean, there's a lot of focus on January 6th, but you have to go back even prior to that, um, which includes the um, civil unrest and riots during the George Floyd protests to look at what, what led the FBI to respond mm -hmm. in the way that it has. So it's really targeted at both the right and the left. And I think that's something that's not that's not appreciated. And not to mention these uh, 42 cop city activists that were charged with domestic terrorism, some of whom were just attending a concert, some of whom I believe were putting leaflets in mailboxes, really obviously protected First Amendment activity. That's a really instructive case, because if you look at the particular statute they were charged under, that uh, the, the, the nature of those charges, uh, the criteria to be, uh, to, 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 to be charged for domestic terrorism was changed after the Dylan Roof um, shooting. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, they expanded how that's defined. And, you know, just me personally, if you left up to me, what would happen to that guy? I... <laughs> this video would get taken down roof but you know i, I you also have to um take a breath and and think okay what affects downstream beyond this horrible individual that that you know we all want to see punished for these crimes what, what effect will that have down the road and we're seeing that right now it's that activists on the left now are being charged with these things since they've right. been broadened
I testified uh, before the House um, Civil Liberties Committee several years ago, and uh, the questions from the, the squad members were all—most of them were part of that committee. And their interrogating was along the lines of, why aren't we, you know, also, why aren't we expanding, why aren't we calling, you know, right-wing protesters, January 6th type people, why aren't we calling them um, terrorists and, you know, why aren't we classifying more activity as terrorism rather than, you know, raising the civil liberties concerns of having the, you know, the left-wing people or the Muslim people who are classified as terrorists. Like, it's not like, it, the conversation moved from that's wrong to let's, Fix this by classifying more people as terrorists, which seemed to, it seems to me a very uh, representative and concerning um, kind of uh, example of where the democratic um, uh, response to this has gone. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I think there's a kind of um, catharsis, like I was saying with the Dylan Roof case, to feel like you're really being tough on you know heinous individuals. And um, I understand people's concerns on both sides. I don't want anyone, no matter their political views, to feel pressured by by um, uh, you know anything. I mean, this what the country is supposed to be about. So I, I get it. I understand why people are so scared. But as always, when people are fearful, these agencies just come in and take advantage. And 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 um, you know, you give them an inch and they go a mile. Hmm. And, I, and I wish that there would be a little bit more um, appreciation of that fact. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for this important reporting, Ken. And thanks for joining us as always. Thanks, guys. New reporting in the New York Times makes the case for how the Kakova Dam was destroyed, which left surrounding areas flooded and entrenched in water. It reads, why the evidence suggests Russia blew up the dam, the report saying a dam in Ukraine was designed to withstand almost any attack imaginable from the outside. The evidence suggests Russia blew it up from within. The article continues, moments after the Kokova Dam in a, quote, war zone gave way, quote, wild torrents cascaded over the jagged remains of the top, but the real problem most likely lay elsewhere, cloaked deep beneath the surface of the raging waters. Deep inside the dam was an Achilles heel. And because the dam was built during Soviet times, Moscow had every page of the engineering drawings and knew where it was. The report later says that after the destruction, each side blamed the other for the collapse and that multiple explanations are theoretically possible. But, quote, the evidence clearly suggests the dam was crippled by an explosion set off by the side that controls it, Russia. So previously, uh, it was unclear, but there was reporting to suggest, and this is still the case, that the dam was damaged by, as part of the war effort by both sides, explosions taking place outside to the structure. You can see that damage. They have some photos in the New York Times of, you know, the, so the, the theory was just the accumulation of damage. It eventually gave way. So this uh, admittedly repressive, uh, impressive report by the New York Times says that that is not the case. That amount of da that damage could not have or would not have been likely to actually caught, breach the dam, but rather an explosion in this inner tunnel underneath the dam that happened at the time that it then broke, um, and that they have the, the most compelling evidence being these kind of energy signatures picked up by satellites um, that to the to a real exact time for when the dam was was destroyed, suggests that that's what happened, and then, and thus, it would be Russia that was responsible. I mean, they make it sound like, you know, they have interviews with all these people who know about the structural integrity of the dam and how it was, 
you know, built to withstand outside attack, very impressive. They make it sound like the Death Star. Like, nothing could take yeah. it down except you, if you fire, you know, one projectile into that <laughs> one little exhaust pipe or whatever, then kaboom. Yeah, it's a weird um, send-up to Soviet-era uh, engineering. Look, I, I think that it's perfectly possible that this happens. Sure. I think it's also possible, and the, the article acknowledges this, a Professor Beecher, who, another engineer, says from the article, it was possible, though unlikely, that water flow from the damaged gate somehow undermined the concrete structure where it sat on the riverbed. But he said an explanation, uh, sorry, an examination of the drawings indicated that the design had protected against that possibility with standard measures. So, you know, it's not, you know, so conclusive um, as to be dispositive, but it does seem to be militating in the direction of Russia having done it. I mean, another issue here um, was that some of the claims cut both ways. They say that Russia built it, so they must have known exactly how to sabotage it. Well, it's been under Ukrainian control, so presumably the Ukrainians who've been running it in Ukraine mm -hmm. for all of this time also had the engineering specs. That doesn't cut one way or the other. What about these random third-party groups that are out there, you know, uh, doing doing Nord Stream, it, it, according right. to the thinking of the mainstream media, for some right. time, although now it, they, we've moved uh, apart from that, maybe right. we, you know, we don't know. It was just somebody. Right. And, and it is it is frustrating because there was also some evidence that wasn't really dealt with initially after the damage um, over, you know, was damaged. Mm -hmm. uh, there was some conflicting evidence based on who was most poorly affected by the consequences of the, the dam. It uh, has negative consequences for Crimea, which is under Russian control. Some questions about whether or not one would execute a sort of own goal like this mm -hmm. just to hurt Ukrainians. And this is obviously the implications of this are significant because it is a huge attack on infrastructure, a kind of crime against humanity, resulting in a lot of deaths. Uh, and it's an environmental crime, you know, towns underwater and the like. And so it's part of the broader conversation about you know, who's really the bad guy here, which I do think kind of misses the point. People who want to end the war in Ukraine aren't doing so because they think that Putin is good or an action like this, if executed by the Russians, is justified or good or something that anybody should support. I mean, human lives are being lost here throughout the context of this war because of uh, actions on both sides. That's why so many people want to stop the war. And there's a kind of acknowledgement that all wars end at the negotiating table. And are we actually... Uh, supporting better outcomes by extending the war, or are there American interests that are out mm -hmm. of step with Ukrainian interests here that are prolonging a war? And we've seen several uh, instances of efforts to negotiate that America and the UK have scuttled, and that's what's led people to want to object to this conflict. And so sometimes I think the blame game around moments like this have an outsized importance. Sure. Not that the the implications of having done something this grievous aren't serious and real and that there doesn't need to be accountability at some point. But it, it feels a little bit like almost a gotcha when something like this is, is described to be because of the Russians. And it, I don't think it really affects people who want to end the war's perspective on things. And I do have to say, I mean, I, be careful how I say this. The so the, the claims, so there are a lot of experts quoting their engineers saying, no, this dam was built really well. It's not going to just come apart because there were, you know, <laughs> continuous explosions near it for a long period of time. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not in any position to independently agree or disagree with those. I have no idea. And, they, you know, they're quoting experts who say that. Um, I know that um, 
in the U.S., our infrastructure crumbles sometimes. Sometimes bridges that were presumably supposed to have been well-made collapse. There was just one in... Uh, yeah, I took the train to Philadelphia for reasons. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> yeah. you know, no, nobody nobody who, who built a, a piece of public infrastructure ever says, yeah, I really screwed that one up. It's, it's not made very well. Don't, you know, blow on it too hard. They always say, no, I did a great job. Governments do cut corners, uh, not like all over the world when it comes to building also, things. This, this corners in get... a war zone, getting damaged so, by both sides from right. for a so year. So again, I'm not trying to like jet fuel can't melt steel beams this <laughs> at all. If they say if that's what blew it up, that's fine. I am totally willing to believe the Russians blew it up. They're invading a country. They shouldn't be doing that. Vladimir Putin is bad. I don't agree with what they're doing at all. People are dying. Bad. They could absolutely have done this. I'm just not. I'm not so, maybe, maybe this is, again, COVID craziness now or something. I'm just not, I don't so immediately go, oh, well, don't, no, don't worry. Experts say yeah. there's no way this thing could have just gradually succumbed to the wear and tear of the war zone around yeah. it. So that that couldn't have happened. Well, even I, the, the New York Times article acknowledges that that could, could have happened, right. even if it's relatively it just unlikely like in that less person's likely. estimation. Right. We're trying to weigh, right, what's the more likely thing? Right. Experts really say this one, but... Yeah. yeah, not at all. Not trying to question this narrative here or something. It's mm -hmm. just, I, I, my, my skepticism rears its head yeah. when I have to hear too many experts say. Well, of. it's also worth noting that in the AP coverage of this, you know, they do the thing that so often happens in these uh, news reports, where they cite for evidence information from a senior American intelligence official who spoke on condition of anonymity. Okay, so once again, we have a source that has a obvious perspective or bias built into what they do professionally. For sure. Who's also been granted anonymity, so there isn't even an opportunity to interrogate that person or the basis of their knowledge. That is not helping the culture of skepticism around news events ranging from Ukraine to COVID to now Thanks, uh, RFK Jr. Autism <laughs> and all of the stuff that's resurfacing. Um, it, there used to be higher standards, many journalists say, to when you would grant an anonymity uh, to sources. And the volume of times that this sort of thing happens, particularly in these kind of national security type stories, is concerning. That's, again, not dispositive, but it is concerning. And I'm sure we'll continue to um, follow this story as more people weigh in and more evidence potentially trickles in over time. More Rising after this. One of Fauci's biggest critics is Senator Rand Paul, who blamed the former director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases for covering up where COVID-19 came from. Here he is with Maria Bartiromo on Sunday Morning Futures on Fox News. Let's watch that. The blame equally should go not only to Chinese authorities, but to Anthony Fauci and all those who advocated for this. But there has to be a reassessment. Look, Bill Gates has been over there recently. Bill Gates is the largest funder of trying to find these viruses in remote caves and bring them to big cities. So what happened in China is they went eight to 10 hours south of Wuhan, two to 300 feet deep into a, la into a cave, found viruses and took them back to a city of 15 million. There are many, many scientists who think that Bill Gates is wrong in funding this, that our government's wrong, that the Chinese government, that really we don't need to be searching for viruses that may never interact with man. 
Paul made Fauci a frequent target for his handling of the pandemic. And last week, his criticism seemed to be affirmed after journalists Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, and Alex Gutentag published a Substack report that claimed the first people to contract COVID-19 were scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So we've been discussing this subject a lot this morning, in part because the administration has uh, seemingly blown right past the deadline to release uh, whatever information they have that was leading departments to make conclusions about where COVID comes from. I'm really interested to see that, to see if those three scientists who, uh, according to Taibbi and Schellenberger, uh, were the first to get sick, if that's in the intelligence we have. Um, and, you know, as Rand Paul was pointing out there, again, it's just, I know I've brought this up a million times, but the, the theory of, of the lab origin, again, extends potentially to U.S. blame, to Bill Gates and WHO. It, it, the, it spreads the blame, it, 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 it spreads the blame and, and includes Western people in, in the blame. So the idea that if you want to pin it on China, Chinese people in a racist way, you, you, you cling to, again, we should follow the truth wherever it leads, but you'd prefer to cling to the initial theory that like the, the cultural eating practices of Chinese people are what caused the pandemic. So I, I just find that, again, so, so a point worth making um, every time it comes up. Yeah, the other part of this is, that is so odd is that it seems undeniable at this point. It's been reported on widely that the safety protocols at the lab were deeply lacking, that there are tiers of um, kind of uh, protocols depending on the, uh, the the seriousness of the virus, the danger of the virus that's being studied, and that there was a real mismatch here between what the safety protocols were and what they were actually doing. So there is, of course, a whole other conversation about whether or not there should ever be gain-of-function research, right. whether the fact, the practice, as uh, Rand Paul is saying there, of bringing viruses that humans are unlikely to have contact with from caves into cities with millions of people. That's one part of it. Another part of it is that even if you think that stuff should be done, should you do you think it should be done under certain safety protocols that prevent there from being potential spillovers like the ones that we may have now just suffered through for the last three years? And when you have State Department cables warning of safety issues at Wuhan, when there are obviously a lot of people in the know who had reason to believe that there was a problem here, and yet absolutely no substantive curiosity about what they knew and whether or not you should hold them accountable. And that only is a problem for those who deserve accountability. It's also a problem for those who want to make sure that these kinds of behaviors aren't continued on into the future in a way that uh, makes us susceptible to another outbreak down the road. So again, the lack of curiosity, the framing of this in political terms, it is, it is frustrating and it is odd. And we just recorded a segment on a New York Times story on Russia, uh, claiming that Russia, there's, there's evidence that Russia blew up the um, Ukrainian dam that had charts and graphs and figures. And I, I can't recall ever seeing that level of scrutiny explaining what the lab tech protocols were and what the safety guidelines should be and the funding diagrams of what went into Wuhan and, and who knew what when. And that is exactly why we still have people who are so frustrated and are so skeptical and who have turned this story, which is one of broad public importance, into one that now has this political valence. Absolutely. The New York Times can confirm that the U.S. government has a heat signature saddle detecting satellite <laughs> that knows at what second the dam breach occurred. But 
they're not working their sources to, to, to confirm that Ben Hugh, the, uh, the Batwoman's deputy, was the first person to have COVID-19. Um, please, please work on that. I like, like do it, confirm it. I, I want to know. Or debunk guy? it. Or if it's not true, if somebody gave, uh, gave bad information and you can confirm that he didn't get sick, like... You know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. I just want to know the truth. Can I we, just want can the truth. Can we interview these three people? I, I've looked. I, I haven't seen any evidence of any interest in, of, in, right. in, in uh, talking to them. When I believe Michelle Berger was on the show last week, uh, I asked him about any. He said he tried to get in contact, but it, they didn't get any it, response. Exactly. It's and there are people. You know, with all due respect to Michael Schellenberger, who have infinitely more resources and the Absolutely. power of media organizations. I'm sure he would agree. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, New York Times behind them, and again. There's no there there, or at least report on your efforts to try to do so and, and let us know what the responses were. Do we is is where is where is right. where are these people? Are they right? Is it just because they're listening to you know the New York Times ran at first they they, they there was subsequently a much better reporting, but initially with the you know the genetic material indicating the raccoon dogs and they were like case closed right uh, and then that turned out to be wrong. So maybe they're just, again, this is my suspicion of experts, and it's not, it's not coming from a crazy place. A lot of experts know a lot and are right about a lot of things. But uh, a, a, a big contingent of the experts, not all of them, there, there are many expert people who have dis, dissented from the wet market theory since the beginning, but a, a contingent of experts who were so bought into the importance of this research and were defensive about it. And if Fauci-type people saying, yeah, it, sorry, I, I see why you're concerned, but this could have never created COVID. So don't worry. Yeah. It could have never created COVID. Maybe it's because I'm a lawyer, but this idea, like, I, I, I think that expertise is valuable. I'm not an anti, anti-credentialist yeah. or anti-science person, or I don't think that there is value in doing study and research and getting professionalized expertise. But as an attorney, the whole point of why you're ever getting to a stage of litigation is that experts disagree. Right, right. <laughs> a bunch of lawyers looked Absolutely. at a bunch of stuff and said, okay, let's go ahead and take this to trial because both sides think that they have a chance of winning. And it's a lot of money gets spent, right? So you don't go to trial unless you absolutely feel like it's worth it for you. You really think you have a chance. And if you get to that point, that means there's a real justiciable question. Like there's a, it's a real up in the air issue. And the idea that you can just default to, oh, this person's a lawyer or this person, both sides are going to have experts. Both sides have psychological experts. If it's like a murder trial or what have you, both sides are going to have medical experts. It's a malpractice trial. There, there's an expert for everything. And it's just, it is not diminishing expertise to acknowledge that there can be legitimate differences opinion on some things. Yes, there's some settled, settled science. Yes, the earth is round. You know, I, I'm not trying to just ask so questions. So say you. <laughs> Wake up, sheeple. Come for Brianna. <laughs> you know, but I, yeah. I, I, yeah, mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like, you just, you got to just do a little bit more um, than defer to expertise, and that includes in, in the situation of, of uncovering the origins yeah. of COVID. Well, I was going to mention a, a, another great uh, article by uh, Ryan Grimm, former co-host at The Intercept, um, talking about uh, White Coast White Coat Waste Project, which is this transparency group mm. that uh, got some documents showing that Ben Hugh, the Batwoman deputy, mm -hmm. uh, who is alleged to be the first person to get sick, um, had gotten, um, was, was the per person on the name of the document for U.S.-funded gain-of-function research mm. of, to the tune of $41 million mm. doled out by uh, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which was overseen by Fauci. We're actually going to have someone from that organization on the show, uh, I believe, tomorrow. 
So you won't want to miss that, and we'll have more rising right after this. California Governor Gavin Newsom's latest media blitz is fueling speculation that the 2024 Democratic presidential field could be getting more crowded. Newsom's recent appearances on NBC's Today Show, a sit-down with Fox News' Sean Hannity, a Politico interview, and his escalated attacks on Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis add suspicion that he could jump into the race. Meanwhile, a new DailyMail.com JL Partners survey actually shows DeSantis faring better against President Joe Biden than rival Donald Trump against Joe Biden. Now, according to the poll, Biden would actually beat both of them if the election were held tomorrow, but DeSantis would come closer. A Biden-DeSantis matchup reveals Biden would take 44 percent of the vote to 43 percent, when up against Trump, Biden would take 46 to 44. That mm -hmm. finding um, being more in line, and we, we, I think we've cited some polls that found the opposite mm -hmm. previously, that Trump actually doing better. That poll is more in line with, I think, what people would just normally expect, mm -hmm. that you know, tr Biden beat Trump once, Trump isn't getting any more popular among the general electorate. Maybe mm -hmm. he can, the, the, the lust that uh, Republican primary <laughs> voters feel for him in their hearts maybe fluctuates, but can he, could he win more people than last time in a general election? I see why people would think no. Maybe DeSantis, who is not a household name yet, has not had nearly as much media attention. It's conceivable that he could increase um, his support or people liking him as they learn more about him. It's also possible he could he could lose as they learn more about yeah. him. But it's 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 a question mark. Whereas Trump is not. I don't think Trump is a question mark for anyone left on well, earth. That would be the theory. So obviously that could be one way it goes. But it's also worth noting that while Trump hasn't gotten any more popular with the public. Joe Biden has gotten less popular with the public than he was in 2020. Now he has to actually stand on his record instead of just talking about the things that Trump got wrong. They're both former presidents with records of you know, conduct. Biden can no longer claim to be able to kind of save the world from COVID in the way that he averred. All of the statements about how, you know, if X number of millions of people died under COVID, uh, sorry, under Trump, that that was completely unconscionable and that would never happen on my watch. More Cut people. to two years later, <laughs> more, more people, people died, died under Biden than right. they have, yeah. you know, under, under yeah. Donald Trump. And so, you know, that is part of what's going on here, could be going on here. Also, the unfavorables of these candidates are dramatically high. We covered, I think, last week how uh, RFK Jr., has better favorability ratios than Joe Biden. Joe Biden is underwater with favorability. Obviously, Donald Trump is no walk in the park as well. But it's difficult to assess what the outcome is going to be when you have two kind of historically unfavorable candidates. We saw this play out in 2016, where, again, everyone had these polls that showed that Hillary Clinton was going to win the day, and we know what happened there. Well, what do you think Gavin Newsom is doing here? I don't think it would, it would surprise me if he's actually going to run against Joe Biden, um, not because he's not ambitious. I think he, he thirsts for it, um, the, for the presidency. The Democratic establishment, though, is so powerful and so all behind Biden. There will be no challenge to Biden if they can help it. So to go up against them is, um, I think, shooting himself in the foot for a later uh, Aspiration, if, you know, this is him running against Kamala Harris in 2028. Fine, sure, absolutely. I, I say he'll make a go of it. It would really, and may, so maybe he's just laying the groundwork for that. 
I don't think he's going to get in the race. I mean, as you point out, Biden is very unpopular. Mm -hmm. um, there is certainly appetite in the party for someone else. Mm -hmm. Gavin Newsom, I don't care for him at all, but he could maybe make a good go of it. Uh, I just don't think he's going to want to alienate. I think he's going to be afraid yeah. to alienate the DNC. I think to the extent that he's planning a run, it will be a sanctioned run. I think that it could be the case that this is a trial balloon of sorts. The Democratic Party is looking at the odds that, say, a majority of Democrats don't want Biden to run. Certainly, a majority of Americans don't want Biden to run again. Um, there have been recent gaffes, God Save the Queen, the fall. People are concerned. I was recently talking to a number of kind of mainstream Democrats, and there was no one in the group who was willing to defend Biden, even in that cohort. Um, so I think that this could be a case of seeing, you know, throwing Newsom out there, getting his feet wet, putting him in front of a Fox News audience, getting him in different kinds of media circumstances to see what his poll numbers are like, what the public response is like to him, to see if the Democrats feel confident enough De demoting Joe Biden and offering an alternative. I think the fact of RFK Jr. being in this race is also a, a factor here, where they're seeing that uh, Joe Biden is going to have a little bit of a difficult time continuing to justify the complete and total absence of a debate for another entire year, even though RF Kennedy is having great favorability numbers and 20 percent of the poll results. What's going to happen when these insurgent candidates start doing their own debates, start finding platforms increasingly on Fox News and on Twitter and places that the mainstream media can't control? If his poll numbers go up, what are they going to say if it's 30, 40, 50 percent and Joe Biden is still reluctant to debate? What's it going to look like if and when there are Republican debates yeah. and there's still silence on the Democratic side of the aisle? Again, they're bought into this idea that if we're not platforming a debate, a debate is not happening. But that's not true anymore, if it was ever true. It's certainly not true now. Yeah. There's too many alternative places you can go and get attention, and it just yeah. makes you look weak, that you can't argue, defend your side, that you want to shut people down by silencing them, not by explaining why they're yeah. wrong. It's, it's such a self-defeating tactic, and it is the one that mainstream forces prefer time and time again these well, days. Well, speaking of mainstream forces, there was a really interesting back and forth um, on one of those mainstream liberal channels discussing uh, the entrance of uh, Dr. Cornell West into the race. This is how they framed his impact on the election cycle. We have progressive activist Robert um, Cornell West, who first announced running for president in the People's Party, but now he is switching to the Green Party. Uh, he's addressing accusations of potentially being a spoiler in the election. Take a listen. You don't look to the weakest candidates as a full explanation as to why you lose. Sister Hillary Clinton lost because she was not a good candidate. The idea of putting all the responsibility on the candidates who get the fewest votes compared to the other big two is just a way of rationalizing a two-party system that has become more and more outdated and antiquated. Do you agree with that? I mean, in today's national politics, how big an impact does a third-party candidate have to siphon votes from Democrats and Republicans? And, and is he going to be on the ballot in 50 states? Well, you just touched on it and Elise touched on it. The key is ballot access, right? If the Green Party, if Cornell West is the nominee for the Green Party and the Green Party is on the ballot in an Arizona or a Wisconsin or a Pennsylvania, then the impact could be significant. I mean, I, I think what Cornell West is saying there, uh, it doesn't to be, appear to be all that versed in history. 
right? We don't have to go back far. The 2000 election, George Bush has declared the winner of Florida by 537 votes. Right. And yet 97,000 people voted for Ralph Nader. So it's a concern. Historian Dr. Cornel West, not apparently well-versed enough in history. It's interesting. It almost felt like the gentleman on the left was um, sh giving a call to the dogs. Got to keep them off the ballot. And in fact, as a libertarian, you well know, that has been a strategy of the two corporate parties to to um, you know, concretize their power since time immemorial. They could Absolutely. be doing a different kind of call, say for ranked choice voting, which would also get rid of the spoiler sure. problem. But that would also diminish the fundamental power of these two mainstream corporate parties. Right. Or you can just um, win their voters by talking about their issues and pledging to do yeah. something. Yeah. A Green Party always being accused of taking votes from Democrats. Uh, the Libertarian Party often gets accused of taking votes from Republican Party, but uh, many Libertarians do not prefer the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. They think they're both bad. There are probably even some people uh, in libertarian, self-described libertarians who would have voted for Biden instead of Trump. It's, it's not clear I, to me at all that they take necessarily more from Republicans. A mm -hmm. lot of them just would not vote for either of these people mm -hmm. because um, neither party is representing um, their interests. You know, you want to be strategic about it, fine. But and also that, that history lesson, I'm sorry, George Bush won Florida because they printed a ballot where people voted for Pat Buchanan by mistake because the ballot was really yeah, the, funky the looking. Supreme Court, it's not, yeah. it wasn't, wasn't the Nader, the wrath of the Nader voter. Yeah. It was, it was a literally a screwed up ballot <laughs> where, where if you had this ballot, you would also vote for Pat Buchanan, Brianna, because it was really badly made. And don't forget, Ralph Nader, this is not an apoc apocryphal story. I've talked to them about this on my podcast several times. He went to Al Gore's campaign and said, here is a list of my pr mm -hmm. policy priorities. Here's 2025, 20, whatever. Pick a couple and I'll drop out of the race. Al Gore decided, no, I don't have to earn the people's votes. I don't have to adopt some of these policies. Sure popular policy platforms, I'm going to go in on my own and he suffer the consequences. America as a whole suffer the consequences. So an, another example of um, a certain kind of narrative control that's coming out of the mainstream media, and we will continue to bring you news from these insurgent campaigns as they continue to develop more rising after this. shocking new report in the Jeffrey Epstein saga reveals the convicted sex offender paid the college tuition of the kids of the former Virgin Islands first lady, Cecile DeJong. This is according to court filings from J.P. Morgan. What's more, that same year she consulted him on changes to a sex offender registration law. This all comes as J.P. Morgan accused by the Virgin Islands of facilitating Epstein's alleged crimes. Additionally, there's some very interesting reporting. Uh, Stacey Plaskett, who's the delegate for the Virgin Islands to U.S. Congress, um, if, you, if her name is uh, reminiscent to you, uh, viewers who are hearing this, that's because uh, she was the one who really grilled Schellenberger and Taibbi when so they so-called journalists. journalists. Yeah. Uh, and then she subsequently sent that letter when uh, when one of the acronyms had been flipped and it didn't really fundamentally change anything about the Twitter files, but saying that, oh, because you perjured yourself, you know, that's a crime and you could face five years in jail, that kind of thing. You know, taking this really weird posturing on uh, the information the Twitter files had uncovered. Mm -hmm. So I... Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm not exactly a fan of what she was going for there, but she is the delegate for the Virgin Islands. Um, this also comes from the J.P. Morgan filings that in 2018, 
um, she uh, was doing a campaign fundraiser, and she asked for Jeffrey Epstein to get an invitation. If you'd like to share this invitation with Jeffrey, I'd be much appreciative. I would be grateful for his support and the support of those he may direct to assist me. This is in July of 2018. We just looked this up. He was arrested about a year after that, mm -hmm. in July of 2019. He then d died or something in prison mm -hmm. shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. So this is not, you know, we have criticized Bill Gates type people for still being associates of Jeffrey Epstein like like a full decade before that. Right. This is at the point where Jeffrey Epstein is, is I think, on his way to becoming a household name mm -hmm. for sex crimes against underage mm -hmm. people. And she is... She is hitting him up for money. Mm -hmm. She is proactive. It's not even that he showed up and then offered her money. She proactively says, make sure he comes to my fundraiser. Yeah. At a time where it, not only should she have known, but like everyone knows. I, That's crazy. I, I think it's it's not a good look. Now, she says that she subsequently donated those donations to various charities uh, and didn't hold on to the money. I do think, to your point, the fact of her willingness not to just to take money from him, but also just solicit uh, money from him many years, a decade after he was first um, arrested and, and right. did time for sex crimes, is questionable in and of itself, particularly from someone who has you know, chosen to mount a moral high horse uh, from time to time with respect to legitimate journalism, the likes of which Matt Taibbi is, and the rest were doing. This is, this is connections to Epstein that are so much more recent. I want to underscore this. So much more recent than any of the other people that we have criticized mm. for having ties to Epstein. Mm -hmm. The college president, Bill Gates, the Clintons, uh, Noam Chomsky, all of that was was not nearly as recent as this. Yeah. This was a year before he dies in prison. Yeah, I mean, what, this is painting a picture <laughs> of the influence that Epstein had on this particular island and how he was willing to potentially even bend its laws in an advantageous way for him. The idea that he would be consulted Again, after he had already been convicted of some sex crimes back in, in, the, in the early aughts on who qualifies for a, a sex offender registry, the idea the first lady, he didn't just pay the kids' college tuition. The former first lady was also on his payroll, receiving a salary, bonuses, and other benefits, including $200,000 in 2007 al alone. It feels like the man was kind of shadow puppeting the, the goings-on on this entire island. And so there's this question of the way that J.P. Morgan, obviously, is benefiting from turning the other way and handling his financial uh, uh, transactions in, or in furtherance of his crimes, but also the way this entire government seems to be influenced right up to the level of Stacey Plaskett yeah. by this man's incredible reach um, and financial power and, as we saw in the case of uh, Bill Gates, some of this sort of blackmailing power. Yeah, this is horrifying. Both, I mean, both of these stories together suggest a, a very concerning level of influence he would have under the goings-on, the policies on that island. Um, I mean, this is beyond—I I think it's interesting to, and to call out the hypocrisy of, of wealthy people, and they should have known better, and what are they doing? You know, all the people we've criticized for having close ties to him. Now he's <laughs> dictating a policy that there's good evidence that he himself would like to abuse and, 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 and having massive financial influence over that—over over the island's um, government and representatives. Um, you know, this being kind of a far-off place that is not— um, you know, that, that I, I could see uh, it's easier to imagine a, a very influential, powerful, wealthy mm. person 
taking over, mm -hmm. uh, having mm -hmm. to have tremendous sway More influence with, without because it's not it's, it's yeah. far flung. It's it's its relationship to the rest of the U.S. is a little is distant. It does. I mean, the, Stacey Plaskett is the delegate. She's not technically mm -hmm. even a member of Congress. Mm -hmm. It's more disconnected from federal control. Yeah. And and it's his little fiefdom. Yeah. And he has everyone in his pocket, including the delegate and the first lady. Yeah. And, and listen to this. The Wall Street Journal reported, based on these published documents that came out on Thursday, uh, that were filed late Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reported this on Thursday, that DeJong also helped get visas for several alleged victims of Epstein. This is from the J.P. Morgan filings. She connected one woman to a local immigration lawyer and worked to get others student visas by arranging special classes for them at the University of the Virgin Islands. This is according to the bank. Um, some victims were enrolled in ESL English as Second Language courses. Um, then email in the filings wow. had her saying, they're structuring the class around the ladies. Please let me know uh, so that they know what to do or not, not to do. This is her writing to Epstein back in 2013. The cost of the course were $8,000, $8,868, um, and that, that she would be covering. Uh, th this is nuts. A, a troop of young women facilitating them coming to the country, their visa work, putting them, like setting them up at a university. I mean, it's hard not to see that as working overtime to provide cover, institutional cover, structural cover for Jeffrey Epstein and his crimes. These are for people who are, were ultimately alleged victims of his. Yeah, I, it's really bad. It's just really bad. It makes me um, it makes me glad this lawsuit is is going forward. There's clearly a lot that's in the public interest to learn about his dealings through this manner. But the the entire government, J.P. Morgan, with you know with respect specifically to the situation in the Virgin Islands, seems very corrupt. Yeah. And, and actively dangerous to young women. Yeah. Now, it's, it's worth noting that apparently, so some of the, you heard me say that some of those disclosures, they, it's coming out of J.P. Morgan's testimony. The accusation is, from the Virgin Islands is, you know, the prosecutors is that he's trying to deflect um, uh, attention from the J.P. Morgan, the bank, is trying to deflect blame from their own role in this. I think it's worth noting for the general public, however, that there's a lot of blame to go around. And simply because there were these political figures in the Virgin Islands who were also facilitating Jeffrey Epstein's crimes allegedly, it doesn't mean that J.P. Morgan isn't off the hook. It's also worth no noting that DeJong has not commented on any of these allegations, um, but uh, that, as we mentioned, uh, Stacey Plaskett has saying, I've as I've stated in the past, contributions made by Jeffrey Epstein to my campaign were donated to women and children-focused nonprofits in the Virgin Islands. Yeah, but by 2018, there is no excuse under the sun to not know exactly who Jeffrey, and obviously she knows exactly who he is, because she knows, he, again, he didn't just show up. She knows he's a wealthy, influential person involved with the Virgin Islands, right? It's not, it's not China or India. There's not like a billion people on it. She knows who he is. She knows he can give him a lot of money. She was perfectly ha happy to solicit that. Again, in 2018, yeah. just before he goes to prison yeah. again for sex crimes against children. Astonishing. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, we'll continue to follow this story and have more rising for you right after this. RFK Jr. censored after having a conversation on Jordan Peterson's podcast about uh, chemicals in the water and the effect that might be having on 
all sorts of health uh, concerns for young people, and then specifically getting into gender dysphoria, body dysmorphia, and, and those issues. Let's actually watch a clip from that interview before we talk about it. These huge levels of depression and despair, uh, loneliness in kids. And I don't think that there's a single cause to it. Um, and I think blaming it on, you know, depression about climate is probably oversimplistic. And in fact, I think a lot of the problems we see in kids, and particularly boys, it's probably underappreciated um, that uh, how much of that is coming from chemical exposures, including a lot of the sexual dysphoria that we're seeing. They, I mean, they're swimming through a soup of toxic chemicals today, and many of those are endocrine disruptors. There's atrazine throughout our water supply. Atrazine, by the way, if you in a lab put atrazine in a tank full of frogs, it will chemically castrate and force, forcibly feminize every frog in there and 10% of the frogs, the male frogs will, uh, will turn into fully viable females able to produce viable eggs. If it's doing that to frogs, it could, it, there's a lot of other evidence that it's doing it to human beings as well. Yeah. So the, the problem, I don't want to say the problem, but I think what's causing so much frustration, confusion, conflict on the internet about some of these statements that RFK Jr is making is that some parts of the, it are, are very correct, right? The study that he cites about atrazine in frogs is a National Institute of Health study. It, it is accurate. The, the statements that he's making about the uh, level of endocrine disruptors in our environment are 100% true and have been a concern of public health officials for a very long time. Atrazine is one of the most commonly applied herbicides in the world. Um, he is someone who's been very focused on big ag and environmental harms that are, res are the result thereof. And when he speaks competently with respect to a lot of these things. There was just a story about a number of Phillies baseball players who had a rare kind of cancer that's been linked to the PFAS. Uh, it's a kind of endocrine disruptor as well, I believe, that's in AstroTurf materials. And people are now reconsidering whether or not it was smart to put thousands of AstroTurf uh, uh, playgrounds and public spaces all across America over the last few years. There's questions mm -hmm. about the endocrine disruptors in Teflon and nonstick surfaces. There's concerns about things like triclosan and toothpaste. These are all things that have been investigated, litigated. The scientific community has raised questions about, and there's ongoing testing about. Right. The issue becomes drawing a link that is as yet unproven between the incidence of people who identify as trans uh, or non-binary or what have you, and the prevalence of these kinds of chemicals. And I do wonder if we could have a conversation about what we do know, which is that there are toxic chemicals in our environment, without necessitating the links between those chemicals and autism or those chemicals in the incidence of people identifying as trans, which, you know, it just has not been scientifically proven, right. that link. I mean, and my understanding is that even, it's not really controversial to say that that chemical is is harmful and has been linked to a lot of cancers. Mm -hmm. um, my understanding was that the even the, the the gender effect on the frogs part is right. There was a guy Tyrone um, Tyrone Hayes is the person famous for that study uh, who has talked about it a lot. It also got a lot of pushback um, from the EPA and the scientific advisory panel. Um, it, it is what famously led to that 
viral Alex Jones video where he yells, I don't want them putting chemicals in the water right. that turn the frickin' frogs gay, uh, the whole, like, gay frogs discourse. Um, <laughs> that whole thing. <laughs> right, naturally. Uh, oh, boy. So, um, but, right, as you said, I don't think it's, it's, it's not quite, and, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says a number of careful things there at the beginning. I mean, he's saying that he doesn't think, like, depression about climate change is what he said. It is multifaceted why young people have loneliness and depression. Um, again, the, the general idea that getting chemicals, getting lead out of the pipes and out of the paint was, was good for— Gasoline um, in the air. Right, not making people angry and violent yes. uh, is a—, is a fairly robust finding yes. at this point in, again, this, these are things that expert people debate. We've, this has kind of been a theme of our show today, right? There are very smart experts on a lot of sides of a lot of issues that are, are, are debating and are, are you know, hammering, are doing studies, and then someone does a study that disproves your study. Maybe your study was methodology wasn't good, and like this is just the process. So there's reasonable disagreement on a lot of, you know, it, again, science is not religion. It's not, and also, there's it's, no chief pope of science who says it it's, they're, right, they're figuring you know, it out. I think it's perfectly, you know, I think, I don't know that there's very many people who wouldn't say, who wouldn't welcome any study in the world that people want to do to make sure that there are not links between any number of environmental factors and negative health outcomes. You know, there there is a, an increased incidence of autism, some of which is uh, accounted for by increased awareness, better testing metrics, and those kinds of things. But even the CDC says that's not all of what accounts for it, and there do seem to be heritable factors, uh, environmental factors, unknown factors. And to the extent that people want to continue to investigate that using the scientific process and method, how can that not be a good thing? We're being bombarded, Kennedy is right, by unprecedented numbers of chemicals, many of which go unregulated and untracked. Um, there are all kind of co cosmetics that are under, you know, I would argue underregulated, but th there's a wide allowance of what people are allowed to put, what corporations are allowed to put in your lotion, in your deodorant, in your toothpaste. And there are weird guardrails between the kinds of things that have to be more heavily regulated, like food and those other kinds of um, cosmetics. So I think I'm, I'm very much welcome the continued scientific investigations into what is actually going on. I think the only problem is when people make claims that are a bit too strong, absent the evidence of confirming something beyond just correlation, because correlation isn't right. causation. Yeah, but I think those claims were strong. I think parts of those claims he made are very much up for debate, and the claims were a little strong. But the framing of what he said in that in that TikTok, so th this is, we're viewing this from a, a deputy tech editor at NBC News, a kind of fact checker, critiquing social media extremism type person whose takeaway is it's infuriating that this is still up on TikTok. So it was taken off YouTube. He, he thinks that clip that we just played should be taken, should be moderated off of, should be censored off of social media because it's, because it's disinfo, because it's misinfo. <laughs> it's it's I mean, wild, wild just, to think that. I mean, the, besides the obvious problem with that, it's also the case that because of Twitter, because of the way that the internet works these days, you just can't censor stuff out of being. You know, I, I would much prefer health professionals to come in and say, you know what, I appreciate him raising some very legitimate concerns about the number of chemicals in our environment. And if as president, he wants to take on 
the, the, the potential effects of having these endocrine disruptors in our environment, wants to put stronger regulations on companies that are putting these into the world, wants to direct uh, National Institute of Health or CDC or whomever to do more studies about the potential causal relationship between these endocrine disruptors and any number of diseases. Yes, do that. It's hard to disagree with that. But also, I would just give the public some caution about drawing any conclusions before the science has done what it's going to do. That's all. And I think there would be so much more credibility in someone intervening with that kind of a message than we have to take this from the internet because it's too dangerous to talk about the fact that obvious toxins, which have been known and recorded and demonstrated to be toxins for a really long time, are increasingly being found in our food supply and in our cosmetic products, et cetera, and, our, and in the grass that we send our children to play on on the, on the, um, on the playgrounds and all of that. It, at a certain point, it, it starts to feel like gaslighting if your criticism is overly broad in the same way that, it, yes, it can feel like misinformation if your conclusions are too premature. Sure. And, and if I was critiquing, I would just say, you know, if I have, I'm not an expert in this category of issues whatsoever, but if I knew something, I, I don't think this tech editor is either, but if I knew something, I would just say, okay, well, this is the part of it that's wrong, or actually our, you know, our water has gotten not less contaminated in the same period of time where more people are, more young people are identifying as trans, so it would be unlikely there'd be some correlation there. Maybe that's the case, I don't know, but instead it's just you can't consume this. How dare you consume this? We need to turn this off. Yeah. I mean, it's also worth noting, I do think that as we heard from that Matt Walsh interview, I think a lot of folks, including Matt Walsh, dramatically overestimate the number of trans Americans that there are. And there, I think there's some legitimate questions about if the chemical exposure is as, as common as it is. And it is. Why aren't more people affected? I think Megan Kelly asked this of RFK Jr. in the conversation she was having with him about autism, early, either earlier this year, maybe last year. Um, and she's like, okay, like I'm open to a lot of what you're saying, but, you know, if this really is this such a direct causation, that, as you're describing it, why doesn't basically everybody have autism? And I, that's not exactly mm -hmm. science -y either, but you know, I think that, that those kinds of questions that really force him to substantiate his views can go a lot farther into correcting whatever errors are here than threats of, frankly, censorship. Mm. Well, we'll get more chemicals in those waters, then we'll see how we feel about the frog takeover. That's what <laughs> right, I'm wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, The Intercept's Murtaza Hussein will join us and we'll get into his new reporting on the FBI's entrapment of a 16-year-old disabled boy. Very interesting, uh, terrifying, horrifying story. Really glad to be able to bring that to you soon. Plus, Justin Goodman from the White Coat Waste Project will be here to break down their organization's recent COVID Origins FOIA request and what that says about where the pandemic started. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.